Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Tonight's reader, John Dufresne, is the author of five novels, uh, Love Warps the Mind a Little, let's see if I can do this right, Love Warps the Mind a Little, uh, Louisiana Power and Light, Deep in the Shade of Paradise, Requiem Mass, and his latest, No Regrets Coyote. He's also the author of two short story collections, The Way the Water Enters Stone, and Johnny Too Bad, uh, two books on writing and creativity. Uh, he's a playwright, uh, a Guggenheim, a recent Guggenheim fellow, and uh, uh, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, and I'm very happy to be able to introduce him today, ladies and gentlemen, John Dufresne. Thank you all for coming. That's great. Um, every bookstore I've read in in LA before has closed. <laughs> Uh, so I hope that, that I'm sure it won't happen now. Uh, this is my first uh, venture into writing a crime novel, but it's not the first time I wrote about crime. Um, uh, Les Stanford, uh, a friend of mine, um, did an anthology called Miami Noir, and he asked me to write a story for it, and I wrote a story called Timing of Uns unfelt smiles. And I wrote it while I was in St. Petersburg, Russia, um, uh, teaching there for a while and uh, walking around in Dostoevsky's footsteps and actually going to the apartment where Raskolnikov lived, right? Except he didn't. Of course, he's fictional. But you go up there and you think, this is it. This is where he lived. And he walked over here and he killed that lady right here on the steps. And we went out. When we were outside the, the, the room where he killed the woman, we could hear inside a baby crying inside the apartment that was in there. Um, anyway, so we walked around and, and I had all this Dostoevsky stuff. And it enabled me to be darker than I should have been. And then my friend Dennis Lehane did Boston Noir, and he asked me to write a story for that. And I wrote about a Catholic priest in South Boston. And, um, and then both of those stories were best American mysteries of the year, in those years. So I thought, maybe I can do this. And I wrote another one called uh, Iffy that was in a Florida Heat anthology. and. Um, so uh, my editor, Jill, said, why don't you try writing a book that will make you some money? Uh, and I thought, all right, that sounds good. And, and uh, so she suggested doing, you know, doing something like I, I was doing in the short story. So I took the character from the, the first short story um, and uh, the timing of unfelt smiles and gave him more problems and put him in here and let him tell, let him tell the story. So I'll just r first read the opening of the book so I don't have to explain anything. Um, 
My friend, Bay Latique, a sleight-of-hand man, does close-up magic. You can shuffle a deck of playing cards, spread them face down on the table, and he'll pick them up in order, ace, king, by suit, or by rank, your choice. He once asked me to think of a card, not to mention it, just to picture it, and he not only identified the card, he did it by asking me to open my wallet and pull out the $5 bill that had the rank and suit of the card written on Lincoln's shirt collar in red ink, nine of diamonds. He can make a parakeet fly from his iPhone to your iPhone and from your iPhone to his shoulder. I've seen him slice a banana in half with a card he threw from 10 feet away. At least I think I saw it. Bay says close-up works this way. I tell you I'm going to lie to you and then I lie to you and you believe it because you want to believe. Bay used to run an illegal poker game out of a rented apartment at the Cypress Ocean Club here in Melancholy and would ask me from time to time to sit in on the game whenever he suspected someone was cheating. Could I tell him who it was, which really meant could I corroborate his hunch? Usually I could, but too often the cheat was an off-duty Everglades Sheriff's Office deputy or an Eden Police Department officer, which meant Bay would have to call the sheriff and make a donation to the Police Benevolent Association in order to get the cop to go away without Bay himself getting busted and shut down in the process. Now that the, the Tequesta tribe has opened the Silver Palace Casino, Bay spends most nights in their poker room separating tourists and senior citizens from their money. When I remind him that those old folks might be squandering their pensions, he says he too wishes they wouldn't be so reckless. But his job at the table is not to coddle, not to coddle them, um, but to intimidate, infuriate, and devastate them. I take their money, or someone else does. There's no room for sympathy in poker. Bay is full of enthusiasms and contradictions. I worry about him. He says he can't not be sitting at the poker table. I tell him that's not healthy. It's not even about the money, he says. It's about what pumps the blood. Last Christmas Eve, Bay and I sat at a sidewalk table at the Universe Cafe on Dixie Boulevard in Eden, drinking the last of several holiday martinis. Bay performed some magic for our waitress Marlena. He did four queens three ways, Maltese crosses, ambitious card, and jack under the plate. Marlena told us she was from Bucharest and was about to be evicted from her room at the Dixiewood Motel because she'd fallen behind on a weekly rent. <clears throat> fallen behind because she'd scalded herself in the restaurant's kitchen and had to go to the walk-in medical clinic on Maine. The universe covered the visit but not the Vicodin. She pulled up her sleeve to show us the angry red scar. Bay asked her if she was all set for pills. Truth was, she could use a couple, she said. Bay lifted his napkin to reveal two pale yellow oval tablets. Percocet's okay, he said. And then he wrote her a check for the past due rent. Marlena kissed him and wept. When she went back to get our bill, Bay suggested that Marlena would be in need of cheering up later on. We can't let her sit alone in a squalid motel room on Christmas Eve. This is America, for Christ's sakes. My cell phone played Oye Como Va. The call was from my friend, Detective Sergeant Carlos O'Brien of the Eden Police Department, requesting my immediate services. He had a situation in the lakes. Five bodies, one weapon, one suspect, much blood. I need you here, Coyote, now. He gave me the address. I checked my watch, 11.15, 10 minutes, I told him. 
I'm not a police officer. That evening I'd be a volunteer forensic consultant. Carlos would get my pro bono counsel and I'd get some excitement in my unruffled life and a chance perhaps to see that justice was done. Sometimes I work for lawyers who are trying to impanel the appropriate jury for their clients. Sometimes I sit in my office and help my own clients shape their lives into stories so that their lives finally make some sense. A lack of narrative structure, as you know, will cause anxiety. And that's when I call myself a therapist. And that's when it says on my business card, Wiley Melville, MSW, MFT, Family and Individual Therapy. Carlos used me, however, because I could read minds, even if those minds weren't present. He said, I read minds, but that's not it, really. I read faces and furniture. I can look at a person, at his expressions, his gestures, his clothing, his home, and his possessions, and tell you what he thinks, if not always, what he's thinking. Carlos liked to call me an intuitionist. Bay says I'm cryptesthetic. Dr. Cabrera at UM's Cognitive Thinking Lab told me I have robust mirror neurons. I just look, I stare, I gaze, and I pay attention to what I see. I'm able to find essence in particulars, Dr. Cabrera said. Carlos told me that the neighbors heard what sounded like fireworks or like gunshots around 7 o'clock that evening, pop, and then pop, 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 and then pop. All the neighbors came out to investigate except the Hallidays, who lived, had lived, here. Mr. Enzu Salazar from 723 across the street came over and rang the bell, and then he called 911. We found this note on the kitchen table. Carlos handed me a typed letter, and I tried to remember what I'd been doing at 7. To whom it may concern, to start off, about this tragic story. My name is Chafin Halliday. My wife Chrissia, my boys Brantley nine and Briley eight, and my daughter, my precious angel Brianna, four. People have put obstacles in my way and know who they are. I'm not insane. But this is no way to live like this. I have let my loved ones down. I have failed at fathership. I had to die. I deserved it, but to love them like I do and to live without them is too hard to bear, which is why we are dead and why we are together on the other side. I could not leave my babies with strangers. Yours truly, Chafin R. Halliday. My first thoughts were, here is an arrogant and sentimental man who was either paranoid or under emotional siege, a man of simple and unexamined faith, whose received values fit him like a comfortable old shirt. And here is his seemingly superfluous confession, but not his explanation or apology. He can't spell or punctuate and is curiously formal. The impersonal salutation and that affected middle initial but not particularly insightful. Which concerned readers did he imagine he was addressing? And that uh, disingenuous closing that ineffectually insinuates sincerity, truly, indeed. This is a person who may have read about letters in a business English class, which he must have flunked, but who had never previously written one. If you're going to bother to leave a note and you're even going to type it up, if you're going to take the time, wouldn't you also take the opportunity to clarify the confounding events referred to? 
Instead, the writer of this note obscured rather than illuminated. He alluded to a story but omitted the first two acts. He called the killings a tragedy and not acts of senseless savagery and obscene cruelty. He muddied his motivation. He did not identify the alleged obstacles in his way or tell us who put them there. He did not explain why he thought he deserved to die or in just what way he had failed at fathership and who uses the word fathership anyway? Hood, not ship, right? Fathership sounds like the lead vessel in some intergalactic starfleet. Here's how you write a proper suicide note. Dear A, as much as it hurts me to say this, I cannot join you on Saturday. When a guy doesn't know what to say to his girlfriend anymore, then she is not his girlfriend anymore. I'm leaving you the engagement ring so that every time you look at it, you can think about what you stole from me, T. T was a client of mine, 21 when she jumped off the Cypress Avenue bridge and hit the foredeck of a passing Bimini yacht. And that, that's sort of the opening that sets up what's coming and, and uh, we find uh, by the end of the first chapter that there are five bodies, uh, the, the Hellidays. Um, there have been three children, uh, mother and father dead in the house. Um, and uh, the police soon um, decide that the case is a case of murder-suicide, which is what it apparently is, and there's no clues that it's anything else. But uh, Wiley's not sure. He doesn't believe it, and he's uh, uh, he begins to sort of um, try to, to get some, to pro actually prod the police, his buddy Carlos, to do something about this. This isn't, didn't happen. Why would, it, why would he have done this? Why would he have done that? And so forth, and so on. And so, um, he begins to get uh, pressure to lay off the case, and he continues despite the pressure. And in this little section in here, we'll talk about sort of it addressing his motivation here, why he's doing it, why he won't stop. In fact, he's being threatened at this point. You better stop. Um, and uh, so this is it. And can't, uh, I should say that uh, Wiley is a twin. And this opens, he's talking about his brother. Cameron was the happiest child I've ever known. He had a bright and constant smile and loved to laugh. He memorized books that he loved and would recite them at the drop of a hat. He was grateful for every meal and gift and said so. He was always thanking people for telling him something he didn't know or pointing out something he had failed to see. Life was a miracle and Cameron was delighted to be a part of it. Cameron went off to the state's honors college, a barefoot white kids with dreadlocks kind of place. And I worked at Winn-Dixie and went to the local branch of the state U. I got my bachelor's in psychology and Cameron dropped out of school two weeks before he would have graduated. He came back home, grew quiet, and wandered about the house in a state of blissful indifference. He spent more and more time alone in his room, writing in his notebook, working on what he called his memoirs. Cameron Lucida, Cameron Obscura. He had, it seemed, become his own double, and now I was a shadow. He told me he wanted to live on the edge, and so he invited death. Most of those invitations came in the form of prescription meds. He said, only when you have death in your heart can you know how precious life is. I said, don't you mean love in your heart? He had no ambition, no curiosity, no courage, no friends, no future. He coveted oblivion and chose to live his life in the languid pursuit of the beautiful lie, the pleasurable pulse of euphoria. 
He didn't work, but he did spend what must have been 40 hours a week searching through the house for hidden cash or items he could pawn. The last time I saw Cameron alive, he was in a familiar position, sitting cross-legged on the sidewalk in front of Publix and Sensible, a book opened on his knee, a lit cigarette in his fingers, his head slumped, his eyes shut, blacked out and heedless. I kicked the cigarette out of his hand and he didn't move. I picked up the book, The Monstrosity of Christ, Paradox or Dialectic. I shook him awake. He didn't know who I was, so I told him. He said, buy me a coffee, bro. After Cameron's murder, I went to his room, number 210, at the Buccaneers Inn with Carlos, who told me the weapons, the drugs, the ball python, the kittens, and the boxes of fried chicken and biscuits had been removed. But everything else was pretty much as it had been on the night of the murder a week earlier. The blood-spattered carpet was covered with plastic drop cloth. I was hoping to find Cameron's notebooks and read about this cruise to nowhere he'd been on. Someone's game of solitaire was still spread on the twin bed. A skeleton's skull bong stared at me from atop the dresser. Inside the drawers, I found a box of mucilics, a dozen or so past issues of Smithsonian Magazine, a Bic lighter, an o overdue library book, Satra, Arendt, and Heidegger. I should return these, I told Carlos. He nodded. Cameron had written a poem with magnetic word tiles on the side of his microwave. Saint blown apart. Please help me put all the pieces back together. The story goes that Cameron had let the two junkie thieves who lived upstairs store their loot in his room in exchange for a nostril's worth of crank. That night, the thieves had robbed an antique store in Maine and had gotten away with a crate of Nazi paraphernalia in a pair of medieval-style war clubs. According to the thief with the Arbeit-mocked fry button pinned to his Iron Maiden t-shirt, Everything in the room was copacetic as the three of them enjoyed their chicken in southern comfort. But then Cameron began talking philosophy or whatever you call it. Talking about how, this how time is matter and bullshit like that. Talking to them like they were in preschool. And he wouldn't shut up. And he said he could feel the effects of the future. And so the thief with the swastik armband and the Simpsons t-shirt picked up the three-foot war club, the one with the iron bands and the pointed studs, stood behind Cameron, took a batter stance, lined up Cameron's head, winked at Iron Maiden, swung, crushed my brother's skull, and delivered him to nothingness. The universe may be tenderly indifferent to our fate, but we shouldn't be. We are our brother's keepers. There is right and there is wrong. There are consequences to our actions or inactions. Disregard can be an act of violence. I may not have been vigilant enough to save my brother from himself. I was hoping I might save the Hallidays from the disinterest and haste of the legal system. So then it cuts into that. Just a little thing about the three children who were found dead in the, in the home. Brantley Halliday loved his skull candle skateboard and worshipped Tony Hawk. His brother Briley's friends called Briley Dr. Everquest or just Doc. Their sister Brianna was crazy about the colors pink and purple and wore a pink tulle tutu and purple ballet slippers to preschool every day. Her best friend was a boy with long brown hair and blue eyes named Ocean. At every costume party she'd put on a pair of silky wings and become an angel or a butterfly or a swan. 
I had decided to find out what I could about the victims, so I spoke with neighbors and with the children's teachers. To take the sticky matter of confidentiality off the table, I told them all I was working with the Eden Police Department, which was not a complete lie. The EPD had neither the time nor the interest in gathering irrelevant information about a closed case. I was trying to imagine the first two acts of the tragedy and needed the provocative details. The boys attended Jaco Pastorius Elementary School. Their sister went to Guardian Angels Catholic Preschool. Brantley was described as happy, active, personable, popular, and was well thought of by his teachers. He especially loved reading and social studies. He liked studying maps and once wrote a poem about Dodo Preston, the man who assigned every country its map color. Brantley was independent and confident. His science teacher, Ann Beachy, told me that, of course, all of that brilliance and enthusiasm can wane in the blink of an eye. All that effervescence can fizzle and flatten. She snapped her fingers just like that when they get to middle school. Miss Beachy wore a personal air purifier around her neck like a pendant, a germ guardian. When I have them, she told me, the children are still precious and I don't want to let them go. Some of them are crushed in middle school. Others are inflated beyond their worth. You can smell the cruelty in the air. We seem unable to do anything to stop the despondency, self-destruction, and the venom. The children are so much stronger than we are. They vanquish us with their insouciance. Several girls in class had crutches on Brantley and, and were now inconsolable and in counseling. A neighbor, Mr. Matisse, showed me a photo of it on his iPhone of Brantley on his skateboard doing a flip kick. He was wearing a board shorts, a black t-shirt, and a beanie that said mystery on it. He had painted into the wild on the board. He had dimples and, a bushy, and bushy red hair. He listened to Mozart to put himself to sleep, his friend Fausto told me. Briley was obsessed, you could say, with online role-playing games. All his best friends were medieval warriors and elf princesses whom he'd never met in person. He played piano and clarinet but didn't like to practice. He seemed to be more at ease when he was someone else, like Virto, a horned night elf Jewid, his avatar in World of Warcraft. This worried his guidance counselor, Gentry Ledee. Gentry told me over stale coffee in the faculty lounge that Briley was a kid who might have had a hard time of it later. His need for constant stimulation might have led him astray. Maybe his life would have been difficult, he said, but so what? Who said life was supposed to be easy? What's the point of ease? We're not here to enjoy ourselves, are we, Mr. Melville? I told him I didn't know why we were here. I told him I didn't even think why mattered. I don't know why I said that, and I was relieved he ignored me. He talked about how for the kids in private schools, the dicey and sketchy ones, how all of their tribulations would be lifted, and life for them would be all bread and chocolate. But with our kids, he pressed his lips, flared his nostrils, and shook his head. I asked him if he'd had a hard time of it when he was younger. He folded his arms across his chest and leaned back in his chair. He nodded and said, that's why I can relate to them. He remembered that Briley wore this wonderful t-shirt that read, drum roll, please. Brianna cried a lot in preschool. If her friend Ocean was absent, she cried. If Ocean played with Tiffany or Harold, Brianna cried. She enjoyed helping her, the teacher, Miss Welbeck, 
with the cleaning and organizing. Brianna had won many holy cards for falling asleep most quickly during nap time. Miss Welbeck showed me Brianna's cubby, which she, Miss Welbeck, had been unable to empty. She thought of it as a memorial. Brianna had a friendship bracelet in there, several barrettes, a photo of a brindled kitten asleep on a mastiff's head. Brianna had yet to blossom, Miss Welbeck told me. Several mothers in the neighborhood said they thought Brianna was withdrawn. The adjectives I heard used most often to describe her were quiet, timid, invisible. So those are the brother and the children. And I'm just going to read one little last section to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> that's kind of like, that's, jeez. And there's lots of other people that die in here for other reasons. <laughs> um, some of them peripheral to his life and some not. Um, uh, okay, so this is how distraught Wiley was over this case. He, he was driving to a chain bookstore. <laughs> I drove to the Barnes & Noble at Maplewood Plaza to pick up a novel that Inez thought I would like. An Air of Baffled Silence was 92-year-old Pilar Lamb's first book. I read the opening sentence, You don't lie unless the truth is dangerous, and I bought the book. I thought I'd sit at the and sit and consider what I knew about the Halliday killings. Jake Karbowski, local gladfly, had set up his office as usual in a corner of the cafe. He'd commandeered the only large table as usual and set up shop beneath the mural of famous coffee-drinking authors. He had his laptop, his printer, his phone, his engraved nameplate on the table. Jake is a conspiracy theorist attends every city and county commission meeting and posts a cranky blog, Everything's Jake. I bought him a coffee and pulled up a chair to the table. Jake said, I'm going to take out the Goldman Sachs assholes. He put his finger to his temple and depressed his thumb. No, you're not. In the AIG, the BP, all the fucking thieves. That's crazy talk, Jake. If this were China, you know what would happen? They'd frog march those cocksuckers out into the middle of a soccer stadium and shoot the motherfuckers in the back of the head. Excuse me. Calm yourself, you'll have a stroke. <laughs> they steal us blind, they bankrupt their companies, and they get bonuses. You'd only get the first one shot, and you'd be arrested. He smiled. I misspoke. I'm going to have them taken out. I'll be sitting right here at my desk sipping a non-fat vanilla latte. His phone boinged. I have to take this, he said. I stood, he told me, this conversation never happened. He turned his back on the room, looked up at Franz Kafka and said, talk to me. <laughs> I took an empty table by the window and noticed that I had a voicemail from Georgia, that's his ex-wife. The cops aren't buying her story. She and the boys are being held in Martinique for questioning, and their ship has sailed. The cops, for some reason, suspect that Tripp, her husband, may have arranged his own disappearance and that she may have known about the plan. Can you imagine that? They're calling me an accessory, she said. Do I look like an accessory? A pearl necklace is an accessory. I called back but got no answer, mailbox full. Someone had left a printout of a Craigslist personals ad on my table after folding it into an airplane. I smoothed it out and read, My name is Karma. 
My lips drip as honeycomb. My mouth is smoother than virgin olive oil. I've been divorced and am currently involved with someone, but would like out of it. Could you be my way out? I have three kids. I aborted one when I was 14, one I lost to DCFS, and one that live off and on with me and the daddy when he out of jail. I'm currently dancing in a gentleman's club, but my dream job would be to cut in style here at the mall. I have cheated on all the sorry men in my life before, but I would like to change this. Would you like to be my first faithful relationship? Please write. If karma's ad were to appear on a college board exam, you might be asked the following questions. One. Karma's opening remarks echo, one might even say parody, what great masterpiece of literature? <laughs> A, Tom Jones, B, Beloved, C, Song of Songs, D, Hiawatha. How many children did Karma actually have? A, three, B, six, C, two, D, insufficient evidence to ascertain. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions, thoughts, comments, suggestions? What did I say? <coughs> Anything. <clears throat> so, I'll just talk then. Uh, no, this. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Audible, I think it is. You know, they're gonna do, for Amazon. They're gonna put it on tape or whatever they do. So they said, they called me up and they said, so what do you want to do? We're going to do it on Amazon. I said, who do you want? you have anybody you want to read it? And I said, yeah, I want to read it. I said, yeah. So I said, all right, blah, 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 blah. And I got home, and one couple of weeks later, I get home and I get a call in the morning from some guy and he says, all right, this is your audition. I said, wait a minute. We're on the phone just like that. I got to do it. He said, yeah, do it. Yeah, go do it now. Go ahead. So I read the opening paragraph. I got halfway through it and he said, you know what? I think we'll go with a professional on this one. <laughs> So they're going with a professional. Uh, that's, that's book life. Anyway, any other thoughts? I I like to think that my one of my students said I had a sleepy time voice. I've I'm work, I've been going on that ever since thinking about uh, anything else. John. Yes. Chapter twenty one. Yeah. I adore it. Well, uh, chapter 21, let me just find it. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> it's uh, the van from the Aurora Lodge. Yeah, so this is um, later on in the book. Uh, well, this is kind of, this is kind of interesting. Um, we, you know, you, some of the characters you make up. By the way, that letter, Craigslist ad, was a real ad. <laughs> I changed the thing about getting a job at the mall or something like that. But uh, the rest of it was, I just found that was it. Um, and in uh, some of the characters you make up, like Wiley, although I guess, you know, he's kind of like me in a way, and he's a therapist because that's telling stories and writers tell stories and all that, I guess. But mostly you make them up. But then some characters you just take from life. And so one of the ones who was taken from life was my father, who is Wiley's father in here, who is old and cranky and sort of in de get dementia, and he's 
going to be, you know, he needs to be taken care of and all that kind of, a little bit. Uh, and he resents it. Uh, and, um, yeah, so it's kind of like my father. My father's blind, this guy isn't, because I didn't, you know, that was just too much. I needed uh, things to happen. I need him to see, he says early in the book, I want to see the northern lights before I die. And so, by the end of the book, he, you know, he's getting sick and Wiley takes his dad to Alaska. He kind of has to go, but he goes to Alaska. And they go up there and they see it. And so we go from sunlight, you know, in, in Florida, and everything's sunny and everything's bright all the time, which is, as David pointed out in his wonderful article that was in Salon, how do you have my Florida Noir? It's like, there's no darkness, you know, like, <clears throat> so we go, it, and it went up to Alaska where, and it was winter, and it's all dark all the time, and they go up to see the northern lights and all that kind of stuff, and so, and this is, this kind of it, and they meet these interesting people, um, you know, I needed somebody to drive them to the to the motel, the lodge, and this lady shows up, and she's fabulous. And she's like, we, you know, I learned her story. So she stays in there. Her husband comes. He comes. And so this whole other people that I didn't know were going to be in the novel showed up, um, and uh, had a kind of, you know, a brief but I thought important role, and 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 all of that. So it's the it's the it's the you know without, you know, I don't want to go give everything away, but it's. <coughs> It's the last time those two guys, father and son, are going to be together, all of that. And a part about it, my father died last month. So I was writing about this while he was going, you know, I didn't expect that he would die as soon as he did. But, I mean, you know, once he started going, it just, psh, he just went. Um, and uh, so it was. And, and actually, the la my friend called me up when my father died and he said the last thing your father said was about me because it was <laughs> one of my friends that Donnie Bollins is a funny guy and that was my that's my friend <laughs> he said that was the last thing your father said um, anyway so that was thank you for that I'd like to check it's a great yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you yeah Jim you know what it, it uh, I did a lot of research on it. What I, I didn't, you know, I, I felt uh, unsure of myself trying to do crime, uh, and I didn't. I said I better know everything about what cops do and what detectives do, and I bought all these books. Magicians, I did. Yeah, that was. A, but that's. Let me talk about the cops first. So I did all this cop stuff, and. Uh, interrogations, how they do that, how, you know, what evidence and all this stuff. And I just kept, I was reading, this is what took me so long to write it. I kept reading all that stuff. And then I realized, he's not a cop. He doesn't know anything about what the cops do. I don't have to know anything about what the cops do. Carlos will tell him, blah, 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 blah. And that was it. So I did too much research is what my point is. And, and uh, I once asked Dennis Lahaim, who I mentioned, I said, Dennis, what are you doing? You got, the, how do you know all this stuff? He said, oh, I just write, I don't research, I just write it down. You know, there's something, I'll catch it later if I need it just right I said okay so then I said I'll just do that too um, the magicians though I love magicians and I love uh, close-up uh, magic and I was in Yuma Arizona actually Jim was there that weekend I think you came that weekend uh, you flew in so that we could look at you know they filmed Star Wars out there um, and it looks like you know Tatooine or whatever that planet you know so, uh, and so uh, but I was out there doing a reading at a college and uh, uh, I went out uh, with friends that night to a, a poker uh, parlor where they were playing poker and I don't play it I don't think it's interesting even though it's <laughs> the character does but uh, so I went in the bar and one, uh, the dealer, they changed dealers, and the dealer came in, and he walked behind the bar as a bartender, and he started doing magic to me. 
And he started doing things like, think of a card. Don't tell me what it is. Just like that. Then he went like, ten of spades. And I said, the fuck did you do that? I have no, to this day, I don't know how he did it. And he was doing that. He did that for about an hour. And I just sat there. And he was just, he was mesmerizing. Now the good thing about writing a book is you don't have to explain any of it. You don't have to, you just, they just do it. Yeah, just, yeah, there's the parrot going out of the phone and flying across the room. Um, and there's a guy right now who's making a little trailer for me. FIU, the school is making one. He's going to do a little trailer for the book fair. And he's going to do that opening where he throws the card through the banana and the thing flies out. And he said, don't worry, I can do that. You know, special effects will get all that done. Don't worry about it. So I said, oh, great. Um, so, uh, but I did, there's a terrific book called Slights of, Slights of Mind, which is a book a neurologist wrote about magic. And somebody like uh, Teller and some other famous musicians, this, this guy who's kind of the model for Bay, whose name I can't remember, what the hell's his name? I know he's on TV now, but he's a pickpocket, essentially. He's not, you know that? Uh, he works in Vegas and all that kind of stuff. He's really good. So those guys talk about what they're doing and how, you know, it's based on, uh, uh, maybe without having studied it all, they know things about after images and about things and how the ice thinks it's still there, but it's gone and all this kind of stuff. So that was fun to research all that stuff. And, and again, I researched more than I needed because he doesn't explain when, base, when Wiley says, how the hell did you do that? He said, that's the magic. <laughs> that's the magic. Uh, so that's, that was it. Anything else? I get all the names that you use for your I know you're a great collector of all the names. Yeah. Uh, I, do, I do collect names and use when, uh, when, when appropriate. I just I keep lists of names. I read obituaries and things like that to find names. And uh, when I hear them, I, oh, that's not a real name. Could it be a real name? Yeah, I try not to use somebody's first name with their last name, but switch it around. But, uh, um, yeah, well, Wiley, here's how Wiley got his name. Wiley, there's uh, a, a restaurateur, a chef in New York named Wiley Dufresne, right? Uh, I'm sure we're related. He's from Rhode Island. He's like 25 miles away from where I grew up and all that. Um, and uh, it is. He's, it's a great restaurant, too. We've eaten there. Um, but anyway, it was so I wanted something, you know, playing with my identity, like Wyatt Dufresne. I just changed it to another French name, a French writer, Melville. Not bad. Um, and, uh, and then once I did that, once I said Wiley Melville, then I said, well, Wiley the Coyote, my favorite cartoon character, right? The Coyote, that would be that. So that's how his name sort of came about. And, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in South Florida, everybody's name is like, uh, um, I don't know, like, like Carlos um, O'Brien or uh, Tiffany Gonzalez. Or it's like, it's just like just the most normal names. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, I don't know. But I do spend a lot of time thinking about names. And I can't write about a character until I get the name right. So, no, that doesn't fit. Find another one. Yes? Did you have a lot of fun with this book? I did. I did. I usually have fun anyway, but, and there's always like despair, frustration, discouragement at some point, but it was, it was fun because I was doing, I got to page 250 in the manuscript, type manuscript. I didn't know who'd done it. 
And I said, oh, Christ. <laughs> this is the difference between writing those other kind of books and this one. You've got to tell them who did it. Um, there are all these people. And so I, I can't bring a guy in with a gun at that point. Uh, so I said, well, it's somebody who's already here. And I had to go back and kind of look. Okay, who might it be? Not that one, not that one. This one, okay, this one. And um, I told that to uh, Christopher Merrill, the poet. I, I, we were at a writers' conference in July, June or something, and, and I said, God, I, I, had, I didn't know who did it, and I had to work. And he said, oh, I said, I had a talk with Tony Hillerman. He told me he didn't know till the last page. <laughs> I said, great, I'm, all right, I'm doing something right. Uh, so, yeah, it was fun. You had another challenge on everything else. You had to like, <laughs> do this and make it like, and then, oh, so here's what I did too. I said, I got a first person narrator telling this story about a crime who doesn't know anything. What the hell am I doing? Why don't I write just a third, what did I go, God. And I started over writing in third person, but I didn't like it because I liked the voice is what I was, was comp impelling me to keep writing. I liked the voice of this guy talking. So then I had to figure out uh, how he found out everything, how it all, how he got all that information, how he knew what happened. And that was fun, that was fun. And it was like giving yourself something that's impossible to figure out and then trying to figure it out, saying, oh, I can't do this. Well, you better, because, <laughs> uh, so that was, that's kind of a challenge. That was what I don't usually have. Yes? Along those same lines, and when you figured out how you've done it, mm -hmm. how much did you have to change it? I had to go back and say, so suddenly <laughs> this person can't be, well, well him, <laughs> or her. I, it could be a her. We haven't read it yet. Uh, I said, oh, no. Uh, and so, yeah, I had to go set up, sort of foreshadowing, see what, you know, um, some evidence that it was, that it was uh, believable that this person could act in that way. So, yeah, I did have to go back. Oh, misdirection. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. It was kind of built into this one. I mean, it, it, yeah. Uh, people who said, yeah, people who said, huh? <laughs> I didn't think that person would be the one. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. And I'm writing another one, right? Because they want if they write one, and they want you to write another. I was starting another novel, a regular kind of novel that I usually write. Um, and then uh, I was told, no, <laughs> we, we don't want that one, <laughs> we want this other one. And uh, so I'm writing about it now, and I got, of course, one less character I can have, <laughs> at least one um, in there, but uh, that's all right. So, anything else? Yes, Jim. Well, I have to thank Joni Mitchell for this one. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot about them. The one I'm writing now has already had about five titles. You know, I just put it up there and then I just change, you know, I'll say, no, oh, this is good. This would be a good title. And, you know, it was the name of the town and it was this. And I think in the end that they're going to want the word coyote in the title. And I haven't figured out how, how to do that yet. So, um, you know, uh, I, maybe I'll have to do that. But I, I just think a lot. I, I take a lot from, uh, you know, from uh, Louisiana Power and Light. Obviously, that was a power company. Um, Love Warps and Mind a Little was from a um, poem, uh, a line of a poem. Uh, 
Deep in the Shade of Paradise was from a poem. And I think the line was deep, deep in the heart, in the shade of paradise. And uh, oh, what else? Requiem Mass was just that was Mozart or something. That was just like put that in there. Uh, so yeah, so I don't know. It's important to get the right title in that it says it's saying something about your characters about the place or about the tone of the atmosphere so in some of the books I have titles for every chapter so I get to play around even more in that but I didn't do it here um, sometimes it gets baroque you know footnotes <laughs> everything anyway and then just more ways to tell a story well thank you all for coming it's great to be here uh, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.